The following podcast contains bad language. Not bad at language, like Trump's lawyers. Bad language, like naughty words. Cover your ears, I guess. Welcome to episode 321 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Today we had a bit of a mailbag. We went through um, a question about logic games, whether the difficulty has changed significantly and whether old games are representative of what you're likely to see on the modern test. We had three emails from people who were asking um, essentially low GPA questions. You know, my GPA sucks. Am I precluded from going to law school? Uh, We have three different angles on that question. (laughs) It's kind of ironic, right? One of the correspondents has a 2.27 undergraduate GPA, which is low by anyone's standards. Someone else had a 3.5 LSAC GPA (laughs) uh, and considers it low. And it is low, uh, depending on your standards, depending on what kind of a level of legal practice you're shooting for. Um, you know, uh, but but we did arrive at the conclusion that even a 2.27 is not enough to keep you out of law school necessarily. If you get the right LSAT, you can absolutely go to law school with any GPA. Yep. We also did a uh, question from Prep Test 73. It turned out to be a necessary assumption question with one very tricky wrong answer. I think that that's a really pretty good teaching question for a uh, level five difficulty necessary assumption question. Cool. Yeah. Um, The only thing I want to say before we dive in is uh, the show will air on Monday, October 25th, which means that you don't really have any deadlines coming up. The November LSAT is the week of the 13th of November. The next registration deadline is not until December 3rd. So nobody needs to make any big decisions about their LSAT prep schedule or their LSAT official schedule. Um, until early December. So no, no big news there. Um, I do want to invite you to come to my November, 2021 LSAT study group. We just started it last week. It's uh, Thursdays, four Pacific, 7 PM Eastern. All you need is a demon free account. So go to lsatdemon.com, sign up for a free account and you can come, uh, hang out with me in zoom and a whole bunch of other fellow students and hear about, you know, how they're preparing for the upcoming LSAT ask me whatever questions you want to ask me. Hope to see you there. All right, let's go on to the show. Let's do it. Hey, Ben, we got this quick question here from uh, Shannon about the logic games. Looks like this came in through the ask button. Uh, It's a premium subscriber of ours and we have an ask button on every question. So Shannon was working on some LSAT stuff and decided to ask this question. Hi, quick question on the logic games. I'm really struggling on the ones from test one through 50. I have noticed a huge shift after around test 50 in terms of the games. Is that shift consistent? Did they redo the logic games of the old tests? Are the older games representative of what we will see on the test? I don't know what Shannon is referring to. If anything, actually, I would say that the games get slightly easier in the 50s. Yeah, I think what Shannon meant was I'm struggling on the ones from test one through about oh, yeah, okay. 40. 
Uh, I, it's yeah. right around 40. There seems to be this inflection point. I, I seem to remember 42 being like super easy or or mm-hmm. super hard. Yeah, it, no, you're right. You're right. It's like 39, maybe 40. Yeah, yeah it's right around, around prep test 40. Tests 1 through 40 just, yeah, they're, they have harder games. And mm-hmm. right around prep test 40, apparently, there's this shift toward easier games. I think in the 40s, they did... They, they did tend to have like super consistent types, mm-hmm. but it was like brief. They, they then in the fifties and sixties, it seems like they went back to this, like mixing in, you know what I mean? Where it's like far more hybrid games or quirky games or whatever. Like I, I don't really like talking about game types very much, but in the, in the forties, they were like real predictable for a minute. Yeah. I agree. Today, uh, I just did the games last week. I did games, uh, all the games from Prep Test ninety two. Yeah, the most recently released test, and I just totally smashed all four of them. Like they were so easy. Yeah, so easy. <laughs> like I got to game four in my class, and I was like, "Okay, I'm kind of nervous here, y'all, because." I've never seen this game before and I've already done game one, two and three in this same section. And they were all really, really easy. So I, I sometimes might expect that they would have a hard game four to balance out the section. Right. And then game four was like also just as easy. It was like, just, (laughs) I mean, and more often than not, that's what we've seen actually since around prep test in the low forties, I would say. Mm hmm. Like there's going to be maybe one hard game in most sections. Yep. The games used to be harder because they had more variables and more complexity, more randomness. I mean, like more, just more rules. I mean, a lot of the, some of those old games are like, whoa, there are, there's like nine players that you're putting in order or whatever you're doing to these nine players. Yep. And there's like seven rules. You got to keep track of all those rules. It's probably harder to write questions for those games too. So maybe they've <laughs> gotten easier because the test writers are taking it easy. I, who knows? When people ask me what's the most, like how has the LSAT changed over time? You know, yeah. the thing I always say, it's the only change that I think is worthy of mentioning. The only change that I can notice in the LSAT mm-hmm. over time is that the games got easier somewhere in the 40s. I would would add to that (laughs) that the only change that I've noticed in addition to that is that the reading comp seems to have gotten a little harder. Some of the older reading comp passages, um, I don't know that they're any different, but the questions or at least the differences between the answer choices seem so much more obvious that it's easier to land on an answer. Okay. Um, that's interesting. People, I have heard people say that, including you. I don't, I can't tell. I don't, to me, they don't look harder. I don't know. Hmm. Um, hmm. But we can agree that the games are certainly easier. Somewhere in the 40s, they got easier. So I think that's what Shannon's pointing out. But what about this question, though? I mean, <laughs> did they redo the logic games of the old tests? No, Shannon, they did not redo anything. Those, they, they printed them in their books. And once they printed them in their books, they they haven't changed at all. Um, Are the older games representative of what we will see on the test? I would say absolutely. Yes. 
Um, yeah, even though they're generally harder, they're still asking you to the asking you to do the same kind of things: order stuff, group things, random stuff. It's all the same. Yeah, I mean, like one third of the games probably have random stuff, and mm-hmm. another one third of the games have a mixing of multiple operations. So mm-hmm. it's something like roughly one third of the games that are just purely like put things in order or put things in groups. And then it's like two thirds of the games that just don't fall neatly into one of those categories. Um, the one thing that all the games forever have in common, including the harder ones that you might find in test one through 40 um, they all contain all of the information you need to perfectly solve each question, not get close and guess perfectly solve each question. You're not allowed to miss questions on the logic games. You have to solve the questions. Okay. So it's like before you pick an answer, you know, it's like, Hey, is that your final answer? Do you know that you're getting that one right? Because if you don't know that you're doing it right, then you really haven't even done the question yet. Yeah. That's a critical learning. People have to like cross that bridge in their LSAT prep at some point. It's one of the most important things I can teach you about the logic games is that you just have to solve it. And so, you know, even if those older games are a little bit more difficult, they have, you will start, you will certainly see games that look exactly like the games that are on the modern test. Like the easier games from prep tests one through 40 are exactly what's on the test today. And, um, they are perfectly, uh, useful for LSAT preparation. I mean, how much less prepared would you be, Ben? Compare hypothetical student A to hypothetical student B. Hypothetical student A does only the games from prep tests one through 45 hypothetical student B does only tests 46 through 90. I would say that the hypothetical, I can't talk today. (laughs) Hypothetical. I can never talk actually. Hypothetical student B would be slightly more prepared because they might have experience with the substitution questions which were introduced in the mid 50s okay that's a good point that the rule substitution question which at most there's going to be two in a section more often than not there's going to be one in a section and which i used to think were harder but now matt dumont actually our logic games guru in-house matt dumont has convinced me that you can predict the answer to those rule substitution questions like 80 percent of the time Hmm. which makes them very easy when you do yeah. Uh, but that's funny that that's where you go, because what you're saying, you didn't say this, but what you what you implied is there's really no other significant differences because that rule substitution question is one out of 23 questions or two out of 23 questions. And the other 21 or 22 questions in the section are just exactly the same as they always have been. So percentage yeah. terms, what do you like? Do you think that if you did prep tests 45 through 90, you're going to be what, 10 percent? more prepared than people who sure. did one through yeah. 45 something like that maybe five because it's not that high high five to ten percent that's it would you say not significantly more prepared <laughs> i would say that yeah just <laughs> like chuck- else I would. <laughs> we're chuckling on an inside nerd joke because there's a question from prep test 92 uh that is 
little dicey with the usage of not significantly less or yeah, not significantly smaller. That's what I said. Not significantly smaller. And that question seems a little suspect, but anyway. Yeah. Shannon, thank you for writing in. Uh, The older games are representative of what you will see on the test. Uh, If you were forced to only prepare with prep tests one through 40, you'd be just fine. Um, Yeah. Prep tests 40 and beyond are slightly more representative, but I don't know. You know, if you're not perfect yet on the logic games, you should just do all of them. Let's talk about hypothetical student C. Okay. Yeah. Who does all of them. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Yeah. (laughs) They're going to be more prepared. Yeah. And that's not 10% more prepared. Right. That's like now potentially 50 or 60% more prepared. Yeah. Because you just did more work. Yeah. Volume isn't everything, of course. I mean, you do have to thoughtfully review the games and think about different approaches for each game, but it's not nothing. Like, I think that the logic games are a test of how hard you can work. Yep. I I have yet to meet a student who can't significantly improve their games if they do the work. Yeah. I've met plenty of students who can't improve their games because they don't do the work. Yeah. Yeah. But if you do the work, you're going to improve. And yeah, like, so, you know, I, I get this all the time. I, I get students who are like, I've really been working so hard on these games and I just don't think it's ever going to click for me. And then I ask them how many games they've done. And they're like, oh, a lot. So many. Oh, I've been studying for so long. And I'm like, no, but how many of the games have you done? We have 90 tests plus uh, there's four games per test plus. So, you know, we have 400 games to work on. Yep. How many of them have you done? And this student will be like, oh, uh, probably a lot. Uh, probably a hundred, <laughs> you know, 20 timed yeah. sections, which <clears throat> that's not nothing. 20 timed sections is not nothing. Well, it's funny you said a hundred because that's, that's a high number. I feel like I hear people who are saying that, that same complaint, even at 20 games. Oh, I've done, I've been drilling. I've been drilling. I've done like 20, 20, 25 games. It's just not clicking for me. Yeah, I don't. These are so hard. I just, it's not really for me. It's like 25 games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So my response is always, well, do another 25 or do or another, do another 100. 100. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. if you've done 100, good job, but you're frustrated. Okay. Do another 100. And come back to me and I'm sure you will be in a better place. Yeah. But if you're still not perfect, you could do another hundred and you could also do another hundred after that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how much do you want this? How much of a lawyer are you? Do you really want to go to that higher tier school? Do you really want $150,000 worth of free law school tuition? Well, then maybe you don't, right? And okay. That's fine. <laughs> I, that if you don't want it, that's totally fine. I don't uh, whatever. I'm not telling people to pursue this this path. Yeah. But if you are on this path and if you do want to go to that top whatever school, mm-hmm. or if you do want to go to law school for free instead of paying for law school, yeah. Then show me. <laughs> like stop talking about it. You know, it's, it's not show me, it's show the admissions committees. Mm-hmm. Like if you bust your ass on the LSAT, you're going to improve a lot, 
especially on the logic games. If you do the work on the logic games, you're going to improve a lot, like transformative, like double or triple your score on the games in some cases, right? We've seen students go from four correct to 23 perfect correct on mm-hmm. the games in a matter of three months or six months. Like it's a lot of work, but if you do the work, you're going to get amply rewarded for it. So stop talking about how much of a hard worker you are and instead show us how hard you can work by just, you know, do a timed section of games every day for three months. Yep. Then talk to me about whether you're making progress. I guarantee you will. All and right. review those games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, not. it's not enough to just pull the lever on the slot machine and hope for a better score. You need to work on them. You need to master them. Um, yeah. We're not talking about the seven sage perfecting a game. Like, I, I don't, that's weird to me. Like, do the same game 10 times in a row and try to do it faster. What? That's, no. that's memorizing the game. What, what value is there in memorizing a game? We're not telling you to memorize a game. We're telling you to do a game, review it, think about alternate approaches, maybe try to do it in a couple different ways. That's what's key. Don't try to do it the same way. Try to do it a different way. Then when you feel like, yeah, okay, I got it. I can see how there's a couple different ways that you can arrive at the correct answer for all of these questions. Okay. Yeah. Then now move on to another game. Yep. And do that 400 times and you're going to be a master of the LSAT logic games. Yeah. When it comes to reviewing, (laughs) we're definitely not saying to do it 10 times or even five times. We're saying do the game and then review it. But there is value in reviewing it. And then in some cases, it depends on how much you struggled with that game, doing it again. Because so many people, right, like I'm explaining it in class and they're like, yeah, yeah, okay. Oh man, I wish I would have thought of that. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, okay. It's like, great. Well, here's a blank sheet of paper. Feel free to do what I just did without any, I'll erase everything on the board. And there's a decent number of people who are like, wait, oh shoot, what What did you do here and why did you do that? Um, sometimes you just have to test yourself. You can't just sit there passively and like watch and kind of nod your head and think, oh, I get it. Right. I This reminds me of, um, I was listening to a podcast. Have I talked to you about the uh, pulling the tablecloth out from under the, uh, the you know, you know that like trick, right? Of pulling mm-hmm. the tablecloth out from sure. under. Yeah. You have all the dishes all the, of all yep. the set perfectly set table. The, apparently mm-hmm. they, some, um, scientists of some sort, social scientists of some sort, I guess, studied, uh, people watching videos of how to do that trick mm. and their subjective assessment of their ability to do the trick. Uh, yeah. And then they <laughs> compared it to their actual ability to do the trick. And there were significant gains in people's assessment of their ability that did not correspond to their actual ability. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's of the people who just watched the videos. Yeah. So be careful. Yep. And I, I don't know that this analogizes perfectly to the LSAT, but there's got to be something there. Oh, I think there could be. I mean, how many people watch us explain a game and nod their heads like, oh, yeah, oh, totally makes sense. It's like, cool. I just explained it to you 30 seconds ago. Here's a blank sheet of paper. Go. And they're like, shoot, why was it T had to be in second? Why did it have to be in second? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, 
They didn't put the two and two together, even though they they were able to follow or somewhat uh, apparently follow along as we held their hands. Yeah. So the people who actually try to do the trick, yep. those people do, in fact, improve on, in their ability to do the trick. Even though they may actually feel like they're worse, because when they try they and, try they and all struggle, the dishes crash and they realize, oh, yeah. shit, this is harder than I thought. Yeah, totally. I'm not so good at this. But actually, you just made more progress than the person who patted themselves on the back and went to the next game. Next trick. That's absolutely right. So, um, yeah, on the logic game. Sorry, you, I interrupted you, I think. No, that's it. I don't <laughs> yeah. actually try to do them yourself. And one of the things yeah. I give challenges in my classes all the time or I give, you know, homework in my classes all the time. I do a game and I'll do it one way and then I'll go, hey. There's four different ways that I could have approached this game. I could have made worlds based on this. I could have made worlds based on that. I could have made worlds based on this other thing. Yeah. And if you would like to enrich and deepen your understanding of this game, I would like you to redo this game three or four times, making a different first move every time. Yeah. And build your worlds starting with this, build your worlds starting with that, build your worlds starting with this other thing. Mm -hmm. And that's how you really learn the critical skill of improvising and finding a solution, right? One of the things that novices always say is, oh, as soon as I have the setup, then I'm fine. And it's like, well, yeah, but the the game is finding the setup. And the critical thing that you're not understanding is people think that there's one setup. Yeah. There's not. There's, there's like 10 different ways that you could skin this cat. And mm -hmm. you should probably try a variety of different ways because on the day, you're going to be looking at a brand new game that nobody's ever seen before. And you're going to have to improvise. Absolutely. Even if the way you did it the first time you feel was more effective than some other method you tried second or third time, um, it doesn't matter. You're developing your understanding of how to approach these things differently and see them in different ways so that when you encounter another game that might actually be easier to do some other way, you're able to do that. You're not just stuck as a one-trick pony. Yeah. Uh, in the LSAT demon, we have videos from me, videos from Ben. Frequently, there's going to be multiple videos from me and multiple videos from Ben. And we're not going to approach any game the exact same way. Uh, even like my video today is going to look pretty dramatically different from my video from five years ago. And uh, there's no right or wrong. It's just different ways of approaching the games. Um, if you watch a few different videos and then try it on your own a few different ways, then you will have truly understood that game and mastered it. Cool. Excellent. All right. Um, we have next here uh, three emails that are all similarly. They're on a they're in a similar vein of like, I have bad grades. So I thought maybe we could kind of deal with these all in one fell swoop. You ready? Okay. Yep. Let's do it. All right. First one's from Sean says, first off, thank you so much for all you do. Your teaching techniques and the demons interface were both invaluable to me when I was studying for the LSAT over the summer. Um, I took mine on the 10th. I'm not sure when this, this email might be a little bit old. Um, I took it whenever I received some tough news this week and was hoping you might be able to shed some light. Apparently, 
In their GPA calculation, the LSAC factors in grades that were academically renewed. I had some rough times when I was 18, I'm 31 now, and I didn't care about school back then, so I got a few Fs. My GPA since I went back to school, five years later, in 2013, has been a 3.95, and I got the Fs stricken from my record, but the credits are still there, so LSAC counts them in my cumulative GPA. I don't know what Sean means by got them stricken from my record. If they're actually not on your transcript, then LSAC shouldn't be able to count them. Yeah. So they are apparently, Sean, still coming through to LSAC via your transcript. Uh, anyway, yeah, different schools deal with retakes in different ways when they calculate your GPA, but the LSAC is going to um, uniform, make that all uniform, um, and and they're going to calculate everybody's GPA uh, the same way, which they do count if you fail the class. It's just... They'll count both the fail and the retake, but they're not going to just expunge the fail from your record. That's just how they do everybody's GPA. That's actually dumb when you think about it, isn't it? Why? If you retook the class, you retook the class. Why don't they just, for everybody, just expunge that from your record? Anyway, go ahead. Well, Sean continues. A friend in law has suggested that since this is my second year applying, I should be applying early decision to a school more within my new GPA range. Oh, wait, I didn't, I didn't finish the previous paragraph. Um, oh no, I did. Oh, my new GPA range 3.51. So that's with the F's. Yeah. Still not horrible. That's not horrible at all. 3.5 is good at some schools. I am thinking this might be the more savvy plan as well. No, it's not because it seems that shooting for a place like UCLA with a 3.5 is probably reaching. What? Not with the right LSAT. Also not with a clear addendum that you have three, a 3.95. Yeah. I mean, anyone who would see those Fs from so long ago and quickly recognize that that's just not who you are now will I understand that they don't report that GPA to the ABA and thus the U.S. News and World Report rankings. But if I was a reviewer, I'd be like, well, 3.95, damn. This person's going to come here and succeed. So I don't need to worry about that, even if I have to worry about it in terms of how it affects yeah. the school's But, ranking. you know, listen to the rest of this from Sean. Um, yeah. Because Sean seems ready to settle here. Okay. Right? He's like, well, I'm going to apply early decision to a lower-ranked school that's more within my GPA range. But it's like, hey, no, you should be applying broadly with the best LSAT you can get. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Like, why are you like, it seems like Sean is closing the doors on himself. Yep. Which is not what he should do. He should, he should apply early, broadly, and let the law schools decide. But anyway, um, he, listen to this too. This is, let's see, see how you react to this. I haven't gotten my score back yet, but assuming I score in the high 160s to low 170s, my practice test average was around 171. I think I will be considered a splitter. Any thoughts about uh, that? Well, um, high 160s, low 170s, because you were averaging around a 171. I guess that's not crazy. You, you sounds like you're kind of expecting your score to drop. So that's, you don't need to expect that. Um, I also wouldn't consider you a, a splitter with a three, five and a one seventy. 
just why are well, you labeling it anyway? Like this, you know, this idea that there are splitters and not splitters. What? Where does that come from? Well, even if even if you consider yourself a splitter, the very reason you're a splitter means that your LSAT score is going to be pulling you up or your GPA is going to be pulling you down. So why are you considering a school where your GPA is within range? By definition, a splitter is applying to a school where their GPA is actually below the range, right? And so you're shooting higher. Yeah, so I want to look right now, actually. I'm going to lsatdemon.com slash slash uh, Boy, I'm having a hard time talking. Maybe it's contagious. Um, LSATdemon.com slash scholarships to look at our scholarship estimator. And I am going to put into the estimator um, a 3.5 and a 171, since that's Sean's practice test average. And what I'm seeing here is, yeah, I mean, UCLA says less than half scholarship estimated. Mm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're kind of a stretch there. I wonder how that changes though. If I bump the LSAT up to a 175, that's four more points. Still less than half on UCLA, but it says full tuition to Cornell, which is also in the top 14. Well, one thing to keep in mind about UCLA is they value the GPA more. No, so, LSAT more. UCLA? Yes. You, I I thought they actually valued GPA You're more. thinking of Berkeley. Well, a lot of the... Yeah. Anyways. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the point is, what I really want to tell Sean is, why are you willing to settle for that LSAT score? Sean sounds like he took it once and is just done with it. Okay. Yeah. Which, you know, like this whole thing of like, well, I'm just going to apply early decision. It's not even early right now in the cycle, right? We're talking in mid-October, late October. It's it's late in the cycle for us. Like for we want you applying in September. And so even though they might have an early decision deadline that's later in the cycle, we think you're late. And what we really want you to do is to get the very best LSAT you can and then apply at the beginning of the cycle. Um, ben, you brought up an addendum. What should Sean say? Can you can you draft Sean's GPA addendum right now on the fly? Sure. Yep. <clears throat> I don't know. It sounds like the last five or I don't, how many ever semesters you had, say my last eight semesters or four years had a GPA of 3.95. Um, I might just leave it at that. Yeah. Or one additional sentence. This sentence can have a conclusion and a fact. How about this? My GPA since 2013 is 3.95 over five semesters mm -hmm. period. Yeah. This is more indicative of my academic promise or ability or whatever you want to say. That's the conclusion. This is more indicative of my academic promise than my, and then put the years, right? So it's the years are going to, they're going to look like a really long time ago. It's going to be like from 1999 to 2001, I had a GPA of 
2.7 yeah. or 3.0 or whatever it is. But it's like two sentences, right? And you're just like, all you're doing is you're, I like leading with the 3.95. And maybe you leave the lower number out just because I think I would leave that out. Yeah, you don't want them to anchor on it. So you say, instead, you just say something like, my GPA, since 2013, my GPA is 3.95 over five semesters. This is more indicative of my academic promise than my, oh, you can just say the years, than my my grades from 20, yeah, than my grades from 1999 to 2001. Or no, so it's, sorry, it's going to be 2009 to 2011 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just push them really back into the past. <laughs> yeah, and you, you emphasize the 3.95, so you give them a chance to anchor on the 3.95. But Sean, the way that that is going to really sing is if you show up with a 170-something LSAT. Yep. Because 160-something is good, but it's not like knock their socks off. Yeah. 175 is like, oh shit. This dude's got the goods. Yep. So I, I do encourage you to write an addendum, but I encourage you to even more than that, get the right LSAT, Sean, that's gonna like let them really see your ability. All right, you want to read this next one from uh this is an anonymous one. Sure. Currently, I have a bachelor's degree, and I ended that with a very low GPA due to health issues, 2.1 to 2.2. Yikes. Okay. Due to health issues? All right. After that, to improve my GPA for law school, I did a paralegal certification program, which didn't do much. After that, I took a few courses at a local college just to try to increase it more. Well, it's the nature of averages. After all of that, my GPA is still below a 2.5. I uploaded all my transcripts to LSAC, and it didn't count any of my courses after my bachelor's, leaving me with a 2.27. We could have told you that. I mean, once you graduate, more undergraduate grades don't affect your LSAC GPA. Uh, Which is based on your undergraduate GPA. It's a shame that Anonymous was, you know, misguidedly pursued post baccalaureate undergraduate classes just to try to improve their law school GPA, which or law school admissions GPA, which is not a thing. Yeah. So, okay. So anyway, um, anonymous is looking at a 2.27 undergraduate GPA. Yep. Um, this person continues, I called a few law schools to get additional thoughts concerning the terrible number two bachelors. Don't even know what that Most means. Lo- Sorry. Um, <laughs> yep. What? <laughs> you have a terrible yeah. LSAC GPA, which is because of your first bachelor's. It has nothing to do with the second bachelor's, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Most law schools said they look at a second bachelor more preferably. No, they don't. That's a lie. They, they're going to have to report you as a 2.27 on their American Bar Association 509 standard disclosure report. So, yeah, they might be willing to, you know, if you show them the right LSAT score, they might be willing to, like, weight your LSAT more heavily than your undergrad GPA. But they're lying if they say that they, you know, are going to really take into account what your GPA was for that second bachelor's. 
She, this person continues, and I don't really fit the criteria to do a master's degree. Well, that doesn't matter because that wouldn't affect <laughs> yeah. your... Don't do a master's degree. Nobody, <sighs> you don't, if you're going to law school, I don't know, I don't think anybody needs to do a master's degree. In spring 2022, I plan on starting a second bachelor's degree to help. However, I attend... Pl- hmm, I intend, <laughs> intend is what she meant. Intend. Or he oh, okay. or she meant. I, I intend to go on, I intend on going to law school in 2023 and the admission cycle would be, would start before I even complete my second bachelor's. This is a sad, sad, misguided applicant. Your second bachelor's is not going to change your LSAC GPA. Your LSAC GPA is what matters for law school admissions. Do not do a second bachelor's because you think it's going to be good for your law school admission case. It's just not. I take the LSAT test in March 2022. I know this is a crazy email, but I really don't know what to do at this point. I'm literally paying for life happening to me in undergrad, and it seems no matter how hard I try, it's getting me nowhere. Please help. Okay. Stepping back here, like if you have a really poor GPA, yes, you can kind of try to fix this by getting a higher LSAT score. In fact, that's the only and probably most effective way to fix it. But there's also this idea of like, life is filled with many options. There are many games or competitions going on out there. Maybe you've kind of disqualified yourself from this competition, the law school competition. Well, except... Why not go to another one? Yeah, well, that's totally true. And that, that is totally valid. You don't have to go to law school. There's many other things you could do with your life. That said, if you are dead set on going to law school, even a 2.27 does not disqualify you. I just searched in our scholarship estimator. That's lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. I just searched for a 2.27 and a 175. Now, 175 is a 99th percentile LSAT score. How many of our students scored 175 in the last year, Ben? Dozens. Dozens. Yeah. So it's a score that, like, it's an achievement, but it's something that Mm -hmm. many, many people achieve. And, you know, this whole misguided, like, I'm going to go do a second bachelor's. Boy, oh boy. What? A lot of time and effort. Work on the LSAT. And this, this student is, like, weirdly planning to take, she's going to take the LSAT in March of 2022, which is just oddly specific for something that's pretty far out there in the future. It also sounds like she thinks she's going to apply. She's going to take it once and apply at the end of the cycle, right? When I hear people say, I'm going to take it in March, I'm always like, Hey, did you pick that date? Because it's the last one before the deadline. And you thought I want to prep as much as I can before this test so that I can then apply before the deadline. Mm. If that's what you're doing, you're just doing it wrong. You need to be thinking about going to law school starting in 2023. Uh, No, yes, starting in 2023, which means you want to apply in September of 2022, which means you have many chances to take the test between now and then. And you've got almost a year to prep. You've got 10 months to prep for multiple attempts. (laughs) Save the time you'd spend on your second bachelor's. Uh, oh God, that's so misguided. Put it into the LSAT. It doesn't yeah. seem like they learned anything from their previous, like they've already done extra classes and it didn't affect their LSAC transcripts. 
And now they're talking to law schools and law schools are somehow telling them we look more, more preferably at a second bachelor's. No, they don't. No, they do not. It doesn't affect your LSAC GPA. So, I mean, they would be dumb to do that. So they don't do that. Uh, anyway, LSATdemon.com slash scholarships is telling me that if you apply with a 2.27 and a 175, not only will you get into some law schools, like schools ranked in the 20s, you probably could get into. Yeah. But there's a full ride. There's more than full ride at George Mason University Law School, which is ranked 41 in the country. Great school. Ben says it's a great school. Uh, more than full tuition scholarship. So not just get in and not just go for free, but they'll actually write you a check if you can get that 175. And there are other schools. Hastings is going to give you a more than full. Baylor's going to give you a more than full. There's a couple full tuitions. I mean, if you scroll down the list, like by the time you get down into the 50s, 60s, 70s, there's all kinds of green and blue here. The schools are going to be falling all over themselves to give you a scholarship if you can get that 175. And, yeah. you know, 175 might be extreme. What if it's a 165? We're going to have to scroll farther down. But 165, man, I'm <laughs> Penn State Dickinson, which was out there early this year in the, in the mm -hmm. cycle. Penn State Dickinson mm -hmm. was out there offering full rides to all sorts of demon students this year. Uh, but Penn State Dickinson says 2.27, 165, full tuition scholarship. Yep. Yeah. So not just get in, but go for free. And, you know, like this applicant, so focused on GPA and then apparently like kind of ignoring LSAT. Hmm. Just doesn't realize how much LSAT's going to move the needle. Yeah. I, I didn't even check the box for URM, by the way. I mean, if this is a, if this is a URM, the estimates are going to change. Um, looks like Dickinson's still the first uh, full ride though. So change a little bit, but not, not significantly. Okay. Um, I hope that was helpful for anonymous. We got one more that's kind of along the same lines. Go for it. Okay. I recently started listening to Demon Daily and the Thinking LSAT podcast. I love your straightforward and direct way of communicating your advice. I'm slowly grasping how to study for the LSAT, and I'm finding it increasingly difficult as I progress through my current program. It took me 10 years to finish my bachelor's degree. I spent a lot of time tr trying to retake courses I failed or dropped in an effort to bring up my GPA to a 3.1, my graduation. Unfortunately, because those courses remained on my official transcript, my official LSAC GPA is a 2.6. This is much lower than what I graduated with and seems to lock me out of most law schools. No, it doesn't. Go to lsatdemon.com slash scholarships and put 2.6 and put various GP, put various LSAT scores and you're going to see offers. So it doesn't lock you out of shit. Anyway, go ahead. The more I learn, yeah, the more I learn about law school admissions, the higher and more steep the mountain becomes. You know, my default mm. advice is like give up here. It's it's like if if that's really how you're going to interpret this whole thing, then you're you're in for a world of pain if you like 
if you're the type of person who makes mountains out of molehills, yeah, you are not going to like law school. Like you struggled to get good undergraduate grades. Law school is going to be much, much harder than that. I mean, yeah, there's some red flags here, right? 10 years to finish your bachelor's degree, taking a lot of time to retake courses you failed or dropped. I mean, how school was not your thing, it sounds like. And now you're trying to go to a harder school. Yeah, a much harder school. Like law school is the top 10% of all of the grinders that you went to undergrad with. Anti-social grinders. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's like the competition's going to get steeper. Anyway. Um, okay. Yeah. The, uh, GG, that's the signature here, continues. Even with a high LSAT score, which is at least a year off with diligent study. Okay, you're making, yeah, this is the mountains, right? Where'd that you're come making- from? <laughs> yeah, why do you think it's at least a year off with diligent study? We didn't tell you that. We're I am experts. Releg- <laughs> we never, we've never said, I mean, some people study for a year or more. Mm-hmm. Most people don't. We don't say expect to study for a year no. or anything along those lines. I am, am I relegated to never getting into a good law school? No, if you get a high LSAT score, you can go to a good law school and go for free. Is becoming a lawyer beyond my reach? Maybe given everything else you're telling us. Well, especially well, because of the attitude of it, right? That's the thing. The, the attitude and, and the this. numbers, 10 years, like, God, like, that's yeah, a Yeah, 10 time. years to end up with a 2.6. That's not, like, exactly a selling point for somebody trying to convince me that they are cut out to be a lawyer. Yeah. It doesn't make it impossible, though. The thing that's going to make it impossible is GG with all this terrible self-talk and this just attitude of making things into bigger challenges than they actually are. So Gigi finally asks, besides trying to crush the LSAT, what else could I do to enhance my softs? (laughs) Don't worry about your softs. Get your LSAT score up. Stop it. Yeah, just stop it. Maybe it took you 10 years because you were like trying to do three things at once. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that's going to really move the needle, GG, is your LSAT. And I would say that, like, this is a pretty clear case of if you can't get a 165, just don't. Just there's many other things you can do. I don't think you're going to be very happy in law school if you don't get yourself up to like a 165 LSAT. But if you get yourself up to a 165, I mean, two points. So, again, LSATdemon.com slash scholarships. This is crucial, y'all. Go to lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. I'm putting in uh, 2.6, 165. I'm updating those results. And I see a, the first full ride is, yep, there they are. Penn State University Dickinson full ride <laughs> scholarship to, to Dickinson. What's Penn State doing? It seems like it wants everybody. Oh, they're hustling. Um, I mean, they're out there trying to get the best applicants they can, you know? Yeah. So they're giving yeah. scholarships. That's that's how the game is played. Um, scrolling down, Catholic is willing to give that applicant a full ride. Pace University, University of Idaho, Atlanta's John Marshall School of Law, more than full at California Western. Full rides at 
a dozen other schools. That's full rides with a 2.6 and a 165. Yeah. Stop worrying about your softs. Your softs are not going to get you the scholarship. Your softs aren't going to get you in unless you're already equally situated based on the numbers. But yeah. four or five LSAT points is not equally situated. I think that's what people don't understand is that like a few points of LSAT is worth more than all your softs. Yep. So here's the last sentence. Thank you for the work that you do in shedding light on this extremely <laughs> daunting process. <laughs> Stop thinking about it as extremely daunting. Yeah. Just start working on your LSAT. Or give and up. E <laughs> if it's extremely daunting, don't do it. Like that's fine. That's there's other things in life that you could do that are not extremely daunting. Yeah, you can pick whatever game you want to play in. Why don't you pick a game in which you sound motivated and excited to yourself? You're like, yes, I want to get up every day and do that. It doesn't sound like you want to get up every day and study for the LSAT. Yeah. So maybe this isn't the game for you. I heard on a podcast the other day, or maybe I was reading something, this phrase that was, uh, give, give yourself the gift of loving your work. I might not be saying that exactly right. In fact, I'm sure I'm not but it's the idea is the same. Give yourself the gift of loving your work. Mm -hmm. I get up every day and I love what I do. Ben gets up every day and Ben loves what he does. <laughs> Neither of us are lawyers. <laughs> Neither one of us is a lawyer. Um, we found something that we really love and it doesn't feel like work. You, it, your whole voice here, GG, indicates that you don't love this. Yeah. So I see two paths for you. One is learn to love it. The better you get at it, the more you're going to love it, by the way. Like people who and end focus, up, focus on the LSAT and loving that. I, I meant the LSAT. <laughs> like that's yeah. what I meant. People who score yep. 170 something love the LSAT certainly people who score 175 or, you know, like when you get really good at it, it makes perfect sense. By the way, you get really good at it because it makes perfect sense. And you learn that lesson that this test makes perfect sense. And I just have to make sense of it. Yeah. And then you learn, you start loving it. But like, if you're not the type of person who's going to really enjoy the grind of doing a hundred or 200 or 300 or 400 logic games in order to improve your LSAT in order to get yourself that 165 or 170 or whatever. If yeah. you're not the type of person who can eventually learn to love that. Yep. What on earth makes you think that you're going to love the intense academic competition of law school, the tedious, boring grind of it, I mean, so yeah, I, so two paths, learn to love it, get a great LSAT, go to law school for free, even with your 2.6 or go do anything else. <laughs> anything. <laughs> but the, the, you know, like GG wants to go this sad middle road, which is to not be that good at it. Keep working at it, but not enough or not in the right way, focus on the wrong things, you know, thinking about enhancing 
softs or to go back up to anonymous above, go weirdly get a second bachelor's for no reason or consider master's programs for no reason. Yeah. All three of these people seem like they're about to settle, right? Sean was going to like apply ED to a lower ranked school. Yep. Anonymous is going out and getting a second bachelor's bizarrely and taking the LSAT real late in the cycle. One time it sounds like and applying late GG is just sad and like giving up on the LSAT before they even started, you know, like even with a high yeah. LSAT score, which would require at least a year off <laughs> with diligent study. No, it would not. We've never, we don't tell people to like quit their job and study full time. We hate it when people do that. Yep. So, you know, GG is going to give up on the LSAT and think that the softs are going to make a difference. None of these three applicants, like they, they're, they're just not playing the game properly. Yeah. You have any final words for this crop? Find a game you love. Hopefully that's the LSAT and we can help you. Or hopefully it's actually not. Hopefully find a game you love, whatever that is. I don't care what it is. If it's the LSAT, we'll help you. Yeah. Yeah. We, we we're perfectly happy if you go pursue any other endeavor if you do want to pursue law school, we think you should go to law school for free. And that starts with the right LSAT score and we can help you get there. I mean, we, we've got like this last year, man, we've got, we've got the goods. Like we've got dozens or hundreds of students who have improved their scores by 10, 15, Double digits, 20 sure. points. Yep. Like I hear 20 point improvement these days and I'm not even surprised. Yeah. And it doesn't require quitting your job and studying full-time for a year. Most of those improvements come from people who had a full-time job and or full-time school. And they studied for 10 hours a week for three, four months. And it's possible that you can just totally transform your LSAT score and transform your law school admissions case and transform your life. Yep in, you know, a few months of the right type of LSAT study, which is not full-time study. All right. Cool. You want to do this logical reasoning question? Let's do it. I'm looking at the this... demon in dark mode now. <laughs> you want to talk about dark mode? Yeah. So if you're drilling or doing a practice section or test, you can click on the three dots in the top right corner and switch from light mode to dark mode. I use dark mode all the time for all my apps, phone, whatever. So now I can do it in the demon too. It really was just for me. So. <laughs> well, you said that that was one of the most commonly requested features. Yeah. So. Yeah. For a long time, it's been like several months, but it was always kind of on the back burner because there was always, you know, something that ended up being more important, but we finally got to this. So and it's it took the three more dots. work than I expected. Yeah. That's weird. Why did it take so much work? Well, there's lots of shades of gray. Oh. <laughs> And, um, you can like, I kind of thought it would be easy. Like you flip a switch, but it's like, okay, uh, one early version we had, the background was black. It's actually not black. It's a, it's a really dark gray because the black is too contrasting and it hurts huh. your eyes. The whole point of dark mode is to, you know, make it easy to read yeah. any time of day, but particularly at night. So. Eric endorsed it. Um, Eric is working with us now, helping us out with some of our videos. What's up, Eric? Um, he's also a student in the demon. He 
he immediately responded to that thread yesterday that we had about dark mode. Mm. And he mm. immediately was like, oh, this is great. It meets accessibility standards and it looks great to me. So he's, oh, you know, cool. like he, he's like, yeah, no, for low vision people or whatever, this is, it meets those standards. So hmm. that's good to hear. Cool. All right. So this is test 73, section two, question 20, logical reasoning. Um, Looks like we have a question about chemical fertilizers. It says, the advent of chemical fertilizers led the farmers in a certain region to abandon the practice of periodically growing a green manure crop, such as alfalfa, in a field to rejuvenate its soil. Okay, so um, apparently there used to be this practice of growing a green manure crop Alfalfa is one of them. There might be other crops. Sure. Um, they're going to grow that in the field to rejuvenate the soil. Uh, I I happen to grow up in like farm land. So I'm kind of familiar with this. I, I think that what they do is they grow a quick growing crop and then they like plow it back into the field. Mm. And that's a way of fertilizing the field. I don't, it's like magic, obviously, but, um, it, it's a way of fertilizing the field yep. in between your like crops that you actually want to grow for money. Sure. I mean, I don't know much about farming, but it sounds like different crops use different nutrients or do something yeah. right. And so then all you're doing is mixing it up so that you don't completely deplete yeah. The crop well, we learned about something. crop rotation. I think didn't everybody learn about crop rotation in like elementary school? I feel like that's a thing that I, I learned about a long time ago where it was like, well, you don't want to just keep growing corn on the same field forever. You need to yeah. switch it up to squash and then go back to corn or whatever. And then the, the soil does better because you're rotating the crops. So that's what this sounds like. But then it, it said because of the advent of chemical fertilizers, some of these farmers have actually abandoned this practice. Okay. All right. It's just a fact. What, what, what about it? My gut reaction is actually, Hmm, I can almost smell something bad happening, right? Like we're going industrial. We're using chemical fertilizers. Great. I'm, I'm sure it replaced some nutrients, but I'm sure there's some downside too. Uh, yeah. Okay. As a result, the soil structure in a typical farm field in the region is poor. Okay. So I don't even know what that means. Soil structure. Yeah. But whatever. There's a, there's soil structure is a thing. Soil structure apparently matters. I don't know what it matters for, but soil structure is important. According to this author enough that they put it in their argument. Um, Apparently, growing green manure crops was good for soil structure, or at least helped you to maintain soil structure. As a result of switching from the green manure crop to a chemical fertilizer, now the soil structure is poor. So either the chemical fertilizer hurts the soil structure, or the green manure crops helped the soil structure. I'm not sure which one of those it is. We don't know. So, drum roll. To significantly improve the soil structure, farmers will need to abandon the use of chemical fertilizers. Yeah, no way. Because I, so here, I predicted my objection before I even got to the conclusion. 
right? Absolutely. When they presented the premise that as a result of this switch, the soil structure is poor, I immediately thought through what that might mean. And I said, well, there's two ways of interpreting that. Either the chemical fertilizers are bad for the soil structure or the green manure crop was good for the soil structure. And if we take that latter interpretation, then this conclusion just doesn't follow because they're trying to say, well, you're going to have to get rid of the chemical fertilizer. And I say, wait, what if we kept the chemical fertilizer, but we also did the green manure thing, which might be good for soil structure. They seem to think that the chemical fertilizer itself is hurting the soil structure, which could be true. Yep. Or they seem to think that if they do the chemical fertilizer, they can't grow the green manure crop at the same time. So my objection is, well, wait a second. Can't, what if we just do both? I love it. I, uh, just last night in class, we were reading, uh, another argument that happened to be three ideas, kind of like this, this has three sentences, almost like three ideas. And after I read the first two sentences, it turned out that the conclusion was last, just like it is here. And before I read the conclusion, I said, well, if those two things are true, then X has to be true. And then I read the conclusion and it actually said X. So I was like, sweet, this conclusion is good. This argument is good. Um, If it had said something other than X, then I would have known immediately that it was bad and why it was bad and how it was different. And I was asking everybody, I'm like, are you doing this? Are you not only reading and understanding, but then putting the pieces together as you get them, not all at the end? Yep. And you just did that. It's reading comp. It's, I mean, as I write the explanations, uh, I was just talking to class yesterday. I was subbing. I was just talking to the class yesterday. As I write these explanations, uh, I, it takes me a long time to just talk about the passage. And it takes me far less time. Once I get to the answer choices, I'm already done writing the explanation in most cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, if I take it one sentence at a time and I really chew on it as I go, yep. then I'm predicting where they're going to go before I even get done reading the passage. Like I know the answer to the question <laughs> that I haven't read yet frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the case here, right? Like we, I bet we've predicted the answer already and we don't even know yeah. what the question is. So what type of question does this turn out to be? Uh, it looks like a necessary assumption. It says the argument relies on the assumption that. All right. So when I see a necessary assumption question, I go, okay, so the, the correct answer is the one that the author must agree with. It's a must lot like a must be true question. The you know, the evidence is going to support the idea that the author has to agree with one of these. Yep. Um, when I have already made such a good objection to the argument, I have a feeling that the correct answer is probably going to have something to do with that. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the problem with this argument is why can't I do the green manure crops alongside the chemical fertilizers? Yep. So it seems like you've assumed that it has to be one or the other. Yeah, people have to recognize that two things happened, as you said, right? They not only stopped using the green manure crops, they also started using chemical fertilizers. Okay, so answer choice A. The argument relies on the assumption that most, if not all, 
farmers in the region who abandon the use of chemical fertilizers will periodically grow alfalfa. Too specific. Um, if that had said green manure crops, it might be more worthy of consideration. But alfalfa was brought up as an example of a green manure crop, and it might be 1% of all green manure crops. Mm -hmm. And this author might have mm -hmm. thought, oh, we're going to give up on chemical fertilizers and everybody else is going to grow some green manure crop. But you can't say that the author thinks that most of the farmers are going to grow exactly alfalfa, just too specific and makes it conclusively wrong. Sure. Um, B, applying chemical, oh, sorry, B. The argument relies on the assumption that applying chemical fertilizers to green manure crops such as alfalfa has no positive effect on their growth. That's not what the author said at all. The author said that the soil structure is poor. The author did not say that the, you know, we could be growing. There's zero benefits. Pumpkin-sized <laughs> tomatoes, as far as I know. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I have no idea whether the chemical fertilizers is or is not having a positive effect on the growth. It's just not the argument that the author made. The argument didn't say, oh, these chemical fertilizers are worthless. That's not what they said. They said, hey. Or they're not growing. It's just the soil structure. That's yeah, it. the soil, which I don't even know what soil structure is or does or whatever. I mean, the conclusion of the argument, by the way, is about soil structure. It says, so to significantly improve soil structure, not the size of tomatoes, not the yield of the field or whatever. It's, yep. it's about the soil structure. This author does not have to agree that these chemical fertilizers don't. They, this, this author could say, oh, no, it, it leads to 20 times the production. But your yeah. soil structure is poor, and that's what I'm worried about for whatever reason. Yeah. Okay. C, the argument relies on the assumption that the most important factor... Influencing the soil quality of a farm field is soil structure. No, no, they, they do not rely on that assumption. They just, they don't have to agree that that's true. The argument is about soil structure. The conclusion of the argument is, hey, if you want to fix your soil structure, here's what you have to do. But they never said that the most important factor influencing the soil quality is soil structure. We never structure. even talked about soil quality. No. <laughs> yeah. Soil structure is apparently one element of soil quality. There could be a yep. hundred others that are more important. Just because this is what the author happens to be talking about does not automatically mean that this is the most important thing in the world to this author. Mm. Yep. In a necessary assumption question, when I start reading like the most important factor, I get queasy because it's just really like that would have to be central to what they were concluding. Yeah. Answer choice strength is not everything. And it's not the first thing you should be thinking about, but because necessary assumption questions are in the family of must be true, it's harder to prove something that's strongly stated. So the most important yeah. factor, whoa, where did they say that this is the most important factor? Yeah. Okay. D, the argument relies on the assumption that chemical fertilizers themselves have a destructive effect on the soil structure of farm fields. <sighs> tricky but no I have a feeling that many students are going to leave this one open if they're doing it properly mm -hmm. they're going to leave it open and then they're going to read E and they're going to realize that E is better if you're doing it improperly and trying to cut corners you could easily pick D and get it wrong here like you could invest two minutes 
where 15 more seconds would have helped you to get it right instead of getting it wrong. Yeah. The author does not have to agree with D. The author might agree with D. The author, yeah, the, the author might think that that's the cause, right? Yes. Sorry. Go ahead. It's totally possible that the author thinks that chemical fertilizers have a destructive effect on the soil structure of farm fields. It's also possible, and it's literally what the author said, that chemical fertilizers have led farmers to abandon green manure crops. Mm-hmm. So two changes, the addition of chemical fertilizers and the subtract the subtraction of green manure crops. And it's totally possible that this author thinks that the lack of green manure crops is what's hurting the soil structure. The author did exactly. eventually conclude that you have to abandon the use of chemical fertilizers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the author thinks that chemical fertilizers are hurting the soil structure. The author could just be saying, well, because if you use the chemical fertilizers, then you don't do the green manure. And if you don't do the green manure, the green manure was good for your soil structure. And that's why your soil structure sucks now, because you don't do the green manure anymore. It's not that chemical fertilizers themselves have a destructive effect on the soil structure of farm fields. I think yeah. the word themselves is actually critical in D. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> if you drop that and then added the use of chemical fertilizers has a destructive effect. I think the author has to agree with that because they said Would as a result agree. of mm -hmm. chemical fertilizers, they've abandoned green manure. Yep. Okay, good. E, the argument relies on the assumption that many, if not all, farmers in the region will not grow green manure crops unless they abandon the use of chemical fertilizers. <sighs> the author has to agree that that's true. The author said... If you use chemical fertilizer, people who have used chemical fertilizers have stopped doing green manure and now their soil structure sucks. To fix their soil structure, they have to abandon chemical fertilizers. My objection was, what if they keep the chemical fertilizers, but they also bring back the green manure crops so that they can work on their soil structure? The author has to think that that's false. The author must believe that nobody's going to use green manure crops and chemical fertilizers at the same time. That's why they're saying abandon chemical fertilizers. Yep. The author has to agree that E is true. So that's going to be the answer for this necessary assumption question. What's the, uh, how do I quickly get to the difficulty rating for this question? Can I click the uh, summary panel next to the eye? It's uh, to the left of the eye. The summary the panel. Right that's the check marks. Yep. We call that the summary panel. <laughs> hey, would it be possible well, that's, to get like yep. screen tips for that? Like if I hover over that, like a name for each of those. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Um, Feature request. The I next to the test 73 also gives you a bunch of tips. But we can have more direct ones. We were planning to do that, actually. It's it's in the mix. <laughs> cool. So, okay. So, when yeah, when I click the, the, the it looks like a checklist. When I click mm -hmm. that checklist, then I see it's, yeah, this one is a level five. And the reason why I wanted to see what the level is, don't make too much of those levels, by the way. Um, it's subjective to your individual experience with the question. But I figured that that one probably gives people a hard time because it's question number 20, because the correct answer is all the way at the end, and because there is such an attractive trap right there. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And if you didn't read E, then you easily could just be like, oh, yeah, this author thinks that chemical fertilizers damage the soil structure. And that's not that just doesn't have to be true. 
but E does yep. have to be true. So this is lawyer shit. This is an example of you have to consider all five answers. Yeah. Cool. Cool. That's that. That's that. Um, Ready to wrap it up? Let's do it. Awesome. You can be LSAT famous. Uh, get yourself on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. You can check out our other podcast. Uh, it's released five days a week, first thing in the morning. That's called LSAT Demon Daily. Those are shorter episodes, five days a week. Definitely give that a listen. That was episode 321 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>